Um, Meryl said that she'd like to uh, self-promote today, so she can, yeah, she can get her resources in the foyer. Um, but if you don't know Meryl, I'm, I'm just going to say the things about Meryl that she can't say about herself. But uh, Meryl is uh, actually Dr. Meryl Blair to everyone else, but she's um, adopted Auntie Meryl to us. We found her and fell in love with her and have adopted her for our community, and so she spends a lot of time hanging around here when we force her to. Um, I think she likes us, but uh, we're really, really lucky to have a person like this as a part of our community who gets us, um, who understands our complicated relationship to the text <laughs> uh, and our complicated relationship to faith um, and who, who has lived that and who has found some kind of way through. So, yeah, we're very, very grateful to have you. Thank you. I think my parents. Um, I come over here when I need some love, really. You know, that's what it's all about. It's just lovely being here with you. So, for anyone who hasn't been here over the last couple of weeks, we're looking at the Bible as narrative and what happens when you allow story to be story and stop trying to make it a manual for living or a set of propositions that you must say yes to every single one of or anything like that. You let it actually be, excuse the breath by the way, I've spent the last two days clearing out the garage and I've got, apart from the fact that I have a, a bit of a um, compression in my trachea that needs fixing, I've got so much dust in my lungs I can hardly breathe but that's fine. Um, so, what happens when we let the story be story? Because what is it with story? And, yep, yeah, off we go. I think we have a slide. I think it's, there is an invitation about story that is very, very special because it invites you into a world that lets you play with meaning. And, by the way, Amy, wherever you are at the moment... Over there, yeah. Thank you so much for your introduction this morning. It just set this up perfectly. It was fantastic. But what we often end up with is a whole complex of emotions and feelings and responses and that those are actually embedded in the text. We are meant to feel complex emotions because we're meant to sit and think about them. The idea of coming to the end of a story and going, so the meaning is this. When was that ever a thing? <laughs> you know, that's not what stories do. So this morning, um, there are lots of stories people have asked if I might look at and, oh gosh, so many wonderful, wonderful stories. But uh, we, after, after Friday night and in thinking about things, I find that a story often catches me and it won't let go. And this one's been doing that. And it came to me kind of in the shower this morning that it actually fits today really nicely. We'll, we'll get to why that. So um, I'm going to have a look at Genesis 22, the binding of Isaac. So what we have there is an artist's impression of that story. And it's a fantastic artist's impression because there are little bits here and there and there are different points of view and you can see a little bit of the story at this moment and then another bit of the story. And it's kind of how stories happen. They call our attention or our attention is drawn 
to different things at different times, depending on what's going on in our lives, what's going on at the stage of life, what's going on in the world around us. And that's what stories do. So artists often get that, and we're going to have a look at a bit of art later on. Just a, just a quick quote. Um, most people are in, inarticulate when they try to describe their deeper feelings and attitudes. They can be even less articulate when they try to describe their relationship with God. For to begin to talk about this aspect of their lives requires the equivalent of a new language, the ability to articulate inner experience. And so many people just don't have any ability to do that. But artists and writers and musicians and you know, people in that wide world of the creative side do. So... Um, one of the things that uh, I probably did a little bit on, I can't even remember now, last year when I did my series on the Psalms, was looking at metaphorical language, the language of poetry. But it's also the language of story. And the idea that this language is by nature fuzzy-edged. By nature, it opens up all sorts of interpretations. So open-ended allows for slippage. Depends on a common reservoir of shared associations, but lets us make a journey we couldn't otherwise make. It, it allows us to wander in a kind of safe environment where unsafe things might be happening, but because it's the world of the story, it holds an area of safety so that when we encounter those things in life, we've got some tools We've already started developing a language to talk about them and sort them and structure them in a way that we can cope with. So, this all looks very complicated, <laughs> but what it is, is Robert Alter, and if you've been here over the last few weeks, you'll get sick of the name Robert Alter. Um, he, he's a wonderful Jewish scholar who has done translations of the whole of the Hebrew Bible. And what he does is really pick up the poetics of the Hebrew language, the composed beauty of it, where they use a lot of repetition, they use a lot of wordplay, sounds that sound the same and therefore bring in kind of multiple meanings at different times. It's a very playful language. If it's a playful language, that tells us something about how we approach it. So all of the um, very unplayful, for example, German scholars that I was reading in the 1970s missed all this, strangely enough. So I'm just going to read the story of Genesis 22. And I don't know how much you can see the colours, but it's one of the things I like to do is go through with different highlighters and pick up repetitions, and it gives me a sense of the pattern of the story. I'm not going to do a huge amount about it, but I just want you to see that it's there. And it happened after these things that God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take, pray, your son, your only one. If you read most of our English translations, they leave out that tiny little word on the end of another word that he's translated 
pray, which makes it a request, not an order. Has anyone noticed that? No, because it's carefully taken out of our translations. Take, pray, your son, your only one whom you love, Isaac. Now, the Hebrew, Yitzhak. So get that sound in your head. means to laugh. Um, I, could, I could do a whole thing just on the name Isaac and the plays on words of Isaac's stories with laughter. Go forth to the land of Moriah and offer him up as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall say to you. And Abraham rose early in the morning. Remember Jonah last week, those who were here, he rose and he went, except that he rose and he went the wrong way. Okay, so his, Abraham's doing the right thing. He's arising and going where he's supposed to. Saddled his donkey, took his two lads with him, and Isaac his son, Yitzhak his son, and he split Yatsi, wood. Hear the sound? Yitzhak, Yatsi. So those two sounds associated in this story with sacrifice. We're just having it sort of every time those sounds come up, that sense of doom, if you like. It's a sort of slow drumbeat going on underneath. And he rose and he went to the place that God had said to him. On the third day, Abraham raised his, raised his eyes and saw Yire, Moria, Yiri. So that's another sound that we're going to hear through, um, the Yira sound, the place from afar. And Abraham said to his lads, sit you here with the donkey and let me and the lad walk ahead and let us worship and return to you. And Abraham took the wood for the offering and put it on Isaac, his son, uh, his son, his son, his son, my son, father. Just notice that language pops up all the time. The relationship between the man who is going to sacrifice and the one who's going to be sacrificed. Our attention is being drawn to the tightness of that relationship. And, and he took in his hand the fire and the cleaver not a knife, a cleaver. Yeah, the actual word used is the word that's used for chopping up flesh. Okay, again, it's a different feel to just saying knife. And the two of them went together. And Isaac said to Abraham, his father, father, and he said, here I am, my son. And he said, look, here is the fire and the wood, but where is the sheep for the offering? And Abraham said, God will see to, and now here's another of those yira words, which can have, depending on exactly how it's used, it can mean either see or provide. So the Hebrews love using one word that'll do the, do the job of two. So you, you're sort of given a wider sense of interpretation. The sheep for the offering, my son. Now, someone's pointed out that there's no punctuation in Hebrew. The sheep for the offering, my son. Just, just again, it, it underlies the ambiguity, the tension that's going on in the story. It doesn't read as simply and obviously as we think it does. There's all sorts of ambiguities. 
And they came to the place that God had said to him, and Abraham built there an altar and laid out the wood and bound Isaac, his son, and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. I think we know Isaac is his son. You know, why does it keep banging on about it? Again, it just builds up the tension and the horror. We are meant to feel the feelings that hopefully we feel as we're reading this. And uh, placed him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham reached out his hand and took the cleaver to slaughter his son. And the Lord's messenger called out to him from the heavens and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not reach out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you, yere, different word but with the same sound again, fear the Lord. And you have not held back your son, your only one, from me. And Abraham raised his eyes and saw yar and look, a ram. That word look, by the way. Um, in in the uh, King James Version, it's the behold, you know, behold, I say unto you. But look, it's actually a stage direction, if you like. It's saying to us, your point of view must go there. So it's sort of taking your head and going. Mm. So it gets left out of modern translations because everyone's over the whole, the whole, and behold, the angel of the Lord. But in fact... Translated, look, it's a really important direction and it makes, it makes the whole story take on a very cinematic point of view. You get your wide angle, your long shots, and then you get the sudden close-up where you, you zoom right in. Look, a ram was caught in the thicket by its horns and Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Yahweh Yireh, as is said to this day, on the mountain of the Lord, there is sight or it will be provided. Two possible meanings for that and both of them add something to the story. God looked. They were seen by God or God provides. Now, both of them. You don't have to choose. <laughs> you can allow them both to add, add depth to the meaning. And the Lord's messenger called out to Abraham once again from the heavens and he said, by my own self I swear, declares the Lord, that because you have done this thing and have not held back your son, your only one, a, a repetition of that, that beginning, I will greatly bless you and will greatly multiply your seed as the stars in the heaven, as the sand on the shore of the sea, and your seed shall take seed, shall take hold of its enemy's gate. And all the nations of the earth will be blessed through your seed, because you have listened to my voice. And Abraham returned to his lads, and they rose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelled in Beersheba. I think if I went round the room and asked everybody what your response to this story is, there would be all sorts of answers because it's, it's a story that has all sorts of possibilities. It's an absolutely fascinating story 
And we have to read it in its wider context to, to get a bigger picture. For starters, that arise, go, take, you know, lech lecha at the beginning, echoes the first call of Abraham in chapter 12. And in that one, he is to leave his father's house, leave um, his, the city he knows, leave everything. So Abraham has already been called to, if you like, sacrifice his entire family as far as, or sacrifice himself, leave everything he knew and go somewhere he has no idea. So God and Abraham have history with this whole call thing and this is just reminding us. The other really interesting thing is that the previous chapter... There's a lot of common vocabulary and the story um, rings bells because what has just happened, and remember this started after these things, so it's, it's connecting to the previous story. Does anyone know what the previous story is? Because no one ever tells us what these things are that it's after, do they? You know, we have this story told us in all sorts of therefore you must sacrifice everything you love kind of way without being told what it's following. And that adds so much to the meaning because what happens in the story before this is that Hagar, the Egyptian slave girl who Sarah gave to Abraham to have a child by on her behalf, if you don't know that story, you might have seen The Handmaid's Tale. That's based on that, okay? And there's all sorts of tension between Sarah and Hagar because this slave girl whose body is at the complete disposal of the people who own her suddenly gets some power when she gets pregnant. And um, all of a sudden, Sarah, who was desperate enough for a child to, to do this, realises that she's lost power by doing it. And so there are a couple of stories about Sarah's abuse of Hagar and sending her away. But in the chapter before this, Ishmael has been born. Ishmael has grown to a... You know, he's older than Isaac. Uh, she sees Ishmael and Isaac playing uh, Yitzhak, ing, together. Uh, it's actually another use of that word, Yitzhak, that Isaac's come out of. And suddenly she just can't stand it anymore that the child of the slave is playing with her son. And so she demands that Abraham sends Ishmael and, and Hagar away. And so the story is of her being sent out into the desert, presumably to die. Because what resources are there in a desert? And in fact... She flings the boy under a bush, goes away, lies down and cries, and God hears and sees her, and that word roe comes in there. And she, in fact, has a well opened for her, which she calls the well of God's seeing, which picks up that, that sound all the way through again. But Abraham doesn't know that. So we get to the beginning of this story, and it's interesting, there are so many gaps in the story, aren't there? So many things we wish we knew. And Hebrew storytelling is really sparse. It doesn't fill in all the gaps. It leaves them for us 
So some of the gaps I've picked up, and you might have picked up some more, the character of God in demanding a test. And in fact, what does a test even mean? What is he testing? And what sort of God would devise a test which is playing chicken with the life of a child? The character of Abraham in accepting. I'll come back to that a little bit later. Character of Abraham in deceiving. Um, did he deceive Sarah? Where is Sarah? What did Sarah think of all this? Did Sarah know what was going on? The character of Abraham um, also deceiving his son. It's all right, it's all right, you know, God will provide a sheep. I wonder what he was saying as he was binding his son. The character of Abraham in maybe having a long history of sacrificing family members. I mean, he, he drags his wife away from all of her support system out into this journey that's going who knows where. And poor old Sarah, you know, she gets a bad rap, but boy, oh boy, what a life the woman had. He's already sacrificed his other son. Why wouldn't he sacrifice this one? What do we know about Abraham after all? Isaac's disappearance from the narrative at the end, did you notice Abraham goes back to the boy, uh, his lads? No mention of Isaac. Where's Isaac? Sarah's reaction when he gets back home. So there are some really interesting, oh, you could probably think of a, a zillion more gaps and things that you want to think about. I just want to read through to you some of the questions that rabbis over the many years, by the way, those who are here on Friday night, Haggadah is the other word. Halakha and Haggadah, not Habakkuk. It's okay, I had a little bit of a brain freeze. So, in the rabbinic traditions from very, very early on, the rabbis have dug into these stories and said, what do they mean, what do they mean, what do they mean? And they've collected the things that they've come up with and they've gone into this great body of work, the Haggadah, which um, then becomes you know, sort of formalised into um, the Mishnah and things like that. And their idea is there's not one meaning, there are many, many meanings, so collect them all. And if I don't like it, it's still asking me to think. And somewhere between the conversation that is set up by all of these different wonderings about what the story means, there are nuggets of truth. And we're meant to wander among them and see which ones we might pick up and look at and maybe put down but maybe slip into our pocket for a later time. So some questions of the rabbis, and we're going back millennia, well, yeah, millennia. How old was the beloved son? 25, maybe 37 is what they come up with. So we're all imagining a small child and the rabbis actually work out, you know, maybe he, in fact he wasn't anything like that. He was, a, he was an adult and it was a much more collegial sort of journey. Did he resist considering life more important than the commandment to honour father and mother? You know, it's not God, father and mother. No, he freely offered himself as a sacrifice to God. Now, remember, these are all one response. And so there will be a whole lot of others who go, no, nah, I don't like that one, but let's try. How did Sarah react? 
We're not the first ones to think about how did Sarah react when hearing the story of her husband's secretive behaviour. She let out a frightening shriek and died. The next time we encounter Sarah in the text, uh, in the next chapter, Abraham's arranging her funeral. Uh, arranging buying a field to, to have her buried in. So, you know, this makes perfect sense for the, uh, to the rabbis. What killed off Sarah, knowing that he was going to do this? Did the episode permanently alter the relationship between father and son, they ask? Yes, they answer categorically. They're not unaware of the number of times relationship is brought to the fore and they're not unaware of the fact that in family relationships, things can get very, very contested and difficult. So again, we're not the first ones to think about that and it's lovely to feel ourselves, I think, part of this great community of wondering people, wondering confused just absolutely not sure about what the final meaning might be. Did the episode permanently alter the relationship between Father and between Abraham and God? And again, they say yes. Now, this is an interesting one. Was Isaac actually slain on the altar? And one response is yes. His blood atoned for the people's sins, without which there could be no atonement. So there's one strand of rabbinic thought that thinks that when, when the ram's horn's blown at the beginning of um, each new year, that's what it's commemorating, the death of Isaac. Now, the fact that Isaac lives in, on in the narrative and um, is deceived as an old man, beside the point. Um, so another response is that Isaac loses his sight when he and the angel looks at each other on the altar, noting that later on in the narrative when he's an old man he's blind and gets tricked by uh, Jacob. But it says that this is compensated for by his ability to see God. So the rabbis notice a lot of gaps and they have all sorts of ways of filling them and I think it's an invitation for us to think, what is going on in this story? Some interesting philosophical responses. Immanuel Kant says that there are certain cases where we can be convinced of what the ethical thing to do is. And he says, Abraham should have said to God that I am not going to kill my beloved son is quite certain that you who, should, who appear to me are God, I am not certain nor can I ever be, even if a voice thunders from the sky. That's um, standing quite strongly on, on the ethical states. Whatever. Um, anyway, there, there are various responses to all of this. Some of the scholars have said, well, really, it's just a story um, which is telling the Hebrew people that child sacrifice is, is absolutely not on and child sacrifice was reasonably common in the ancient Near East. Well, that might be also one purpose. Certainly not the only purpose. There's too much effort gone into telling that story so very, very artfully for that to be the only question. I want to have a look at some artistic responses. 
Chartres Cathedral, uh, there's a row of uh, prophets and there's uh, on, on one of the um, portals. And the second from that side, your left, is Abraham and Isaac. Sort of might be able to see that a bit more clearly, I'm not sure. Isaac has this pious look on his face. He's got his hands folded, sort of gazing up to heaven as the willing little lamb who's about to be slaughtered. So that was an early, um, you know, quite early in Christian um, iconography, the idea of Isaac as the type of, of Christ, which is probably how a lot of us have heard this story as well. And so an Isaac who is a willing sacrifice is a reading back into the story very much from the um, Christian story. Uh, Donatello, um, you've got a slightly older Isaac there. So interesting that, you know, 14th, uh, 15th century, they're starting to think a little bit more about the actual personalities. Uh, <laughs> You can't see that very well. It's, it's um, in Florence. I have actually seen it. It's wonderful. The thing I like best about it is the ram that's scratching its ear with its back hoof. I mean, there's something very playful. I don't think um, uh, Bruno Lischke was all that bothered by the ins and outs of the story. He was getting a good um, artistic composition going. Now... Caravaggio. So Caravaggio, 1603, you've got a screaming Isaac. And note the position of the father's hand holding him down. And the look on Abraham's face. There's a sort of determination, but suddenly his attention's been caught by the messenger. So there's already a, a beginning of a thinking of there are personalities involved here, there are, there are family relationships. What might have been the reality of the, any sort of family relationship that this story might speak into? Rembrandt, similarly, I think, um, you know, the agony in the position of Isaac. And Rembrandt did a lot of... Um, sketches of the, the Abraham stories and they change over time as he thinks about them more and more and you can see him really wondering as time goes on you know what was Abraham thinking and what was happening in the relationships here and I'd love to know what was happening in um, Rembrandt's own life as as he walked with this story because obviously there's a lot of toing and froing between what's going on for him and, and how he reads his story. Modern interpretations, and this is one of the things that I think is, is really, really interesting, that this story has continued to have resonances in all sorts of ways that have led people to think about issues like the sacrifice of young men by old men. This, George Siegel was um, a Jewish sculptor and he was commissioned by um, Kent University in uh, the US for, uh, to do a statue to commemorate 
the deaths of four students when state troopers were sent in to break up a sit-in that was protesting the um, Vietnam War. And he used this story. And if you could see it a little bit more clearly, Isaac is a student and Abraham is a state trooper. When Kent University saw it, they refused to have it. It was too confronting. So Princeton bought it and it's displayed in Princeton. Boy, it causes, causes you to think. And the questions that it, rise, uh, uh, that it raises about sacrifice, the meaning of sacrifice, whether sacrifice is necessary or not, just what people are being called to and how people are understanding things. There are these questions implicit in the story. I wonder whether, you know, often has gone through my mind, this is the Abraham who just a few chapters earlier stood up to God over the destruction of Sodom and, and had this long bargaining with God and, and says to God, will the judge of the earth do what's just? Actually asks God what it means to be God. And I wonder whether that Abraham had a fair enough idea about, you know, we're talking narratively here, fair enough idea about God's godness to play chicken. I don't know what you're like. Let's push this as far as it goes and see what happens. Don't know. I mean, you know, that's my sort of one of my readings of it. I have many readings depending on where I am at the time. It's a very, very complex story. We're not told what the outcome is. We're not told that the end of the story is this happy ending. We are told, certainly, that there's a repetition of a word that comes up regularly through the Abraham stories, which is blessing. You might have noticed it towards the end there. You'll be blessed because all of this has happened. And it points us back to the beginning of the call of um, Abraham and the promise of, of many seed. So there's something going on there that is part of the sort of meta-narrative. We talked a bit about this on Friday night, that there are many very difficult bits in the, in the narratives, but there's always a meta-narrative which is leading towards promise, which is leading towards redemption, reconciliation, hope. So sometimes I think we're invited into the small narrative to think about the complexities of human living in actual context, you know. All of us live in families that have got all sorts of stuff going on in them. All of us live in societies that have all sorts of stuff going on in them. And we really need to grapple and sit with the confusion of that. But there's also always this meta-narrative which takes us up and beyond that to something that's very hopeful. So how we hold the tension between the two of those can be really quite tricky. I think it's why we're given the joy of each other's company to help us all do that and try and work it through. Oh, very, very modern or much more modern. 1947, a painting of Sarah and there's just an absolute agony. The face seems to be just an open scream. 
It's a little bit like Munch. And think of it, 1947. A picture of a Jewish mother, a picture of any mother whose sons are off in the war. Will they come home, won't they? Have we already heard the news that they'll never come home? So the picture of the agony of the ones who wait, the ones who are bereft. And finally, Wilfred Owen. Uh, Wilfred Owen was one of the great war poets, uh, died just before the armistice was signed, killed in the, in the war, he was 19, wrote some amazing poetry. I don't know whether I can get through this. I'm not very good at getting through this poem, I have to say. But the parable of the old man and the young. <coughs> Written in the trenches, by the way. He was, he, was a, he was a foot soldier. He was in the trenches. He was in the worst possible places. So Abram rose and claved the wood and went and took the fire with him and a knife and as they sojourned, both of them together, Isaac, the firstborn, spake and said, My father, behold the preparations, fire and iron, but where the lamb for this burnt offering? Then Abram bound the youth with belts and straps and builded parapets and trenches there and stretched forth the knife to slay his son. When lo, an angel called him out of heaven, saying, Lay not thy hand upon the lad, neither do anything to him, thy son. Behold, caught in a thicket by its horns, a ram, offer the ram of pride instead. But the old man would not so, but slew his son, and half the seed of Europe, one by one. Oh, I can never get through it. Should have got someone else to read it. But that's the appropriate response. A story that asks questions and it continues to ask questions, which is the genius of the story. If we sort of came to the end of that story and said, well, I don't know what it sounds like, but obviously it's about Jesus, we've kind of closed it down as we looked at last week with Jonah, that if you ask the historical questions, you end up saying, okay, could a fish actually swallow a human and could they live in it for three days? End of discussion, which is, it was for many, many um, years. Let it be story. And we're invited into a world to never quite find a solution, but to keep asking questions. And so much of the biblical text is that. I remember one of my um, old colleagues, a, a fabulous Jesuit called Anthony Can, uh, Tony Campbell, crazy man, but she was a great scholar, wrote a beautiful article where he mused on what the whole point of the Bible was. And he did this at the end of a very long and illustrious career as a biblical scholar. And he said, it's an invitation to think. That's what it is. It's an invitation to think. Now, there is a meta-narrative in there that is also saying it's an invitation to try and live towards 
salvation, whatever that word means, but it's got to mean love and reconciliation and redemption and bringing the children home and finding what home might mean and making sure everyone is in it. That's clearly there all the way through. But on the way through, there is this strong recognition that life is complicated and we need places that are safe to wander in to go, what do I do when this happens? What do I think about this? And where are the conversation partners that make this actually sacred conversation? You know, not just people fulminating down the pub about, you know, their own prejudices, but really solid thinking and then thinking deeper and then thinking deeper. That's what the Bible calls us to. And hopefully this story has been something that can lead you towards that. It'd be lovely to be able to open up for lots of discussion, but I don't think we have time because I've carried on for far too long as I always do. But hopefully it's a conversation that you will keep having. And um, I hope it's allowed some of you who've had the Bible sort of tightly closed and bash you over the head with it, allowed it to actually be a bit more friendly because it is, it's a playful thing and, and it invites us into a conversation that went on for centuries and centuries and centuries and still goes on. And the Bible itself never came to a conclusion. It ended up waiting. You know, by the end of Revelation, you've got a hope rather than conclusion. And it's good to remember that. So, that might just be a good time to move into a time where we join together in communion. Because communion, as I said last week, is a recognition of a story that is grounded in a particular time in history, but which has meaning that we walk into and we wander in. What is it about this story of a man who walks towards his own death and accepts that without fear stopping him? What does that say to us about accepting our own mortality? What is it about that story of a man who talks about his body being broken and his blood being spilt for the sake of not just his friends but the people he doesn't like, his enemies? What does that say to us as we continually break the bread and pour the liquid, whatever it is at the moment? What does that say to us as we break the bread, share it around any other table that we share bread around? What does it say to us about those who are not present at that table? What does it ask us to consider about who should be and could be present or which tables we could be present at that we've recused ourselves from because we don't like those people? So many questions that that one story brings up and yet too often we sort of bring it down to just a few little formulaic words and go through some actions. So... Let me just bring us together in a moment of prayer before we do the 
each person from a table come and collect a um, plate. And while they're doing that, if anyone hasn't got some sort of liquid in front of them, um, please feel free to go and get some water or coffee or tea. And that will be our cup for today. God of questions. Thank you for the dynamic relationship that has always been there with your people. The growing in understanding of what it is to be God, the growing in understanding of what it is to be God's people. We pray that the openness to the complexity of that, which comes through so very clearly in the story of the death of Christ, will continue to animate us, keep us open and curious, keep us willing to be broken for the sake of others, knowing that paradox of all of that is that in so doing, there is healing for all. Amen.